All right. Well, we're here to resume chapter one of volume one. Um, I slept last night dreaming of all these palm trees and stuff. Um, you gotta admit, despite a few repetitive word choices, she's a very good scene describer. Uh, I, I rather liked it. I was surprised by how much I liked it, but uh, you know, maybe a little repetitive, but that's really the only downside. I think that in general, she's a very good scene describer. So looking forward to a little more description of palm trees and delicious melancholy today. We'll see where we go. Emily played and sung several of their favorite airs with the delicacy of expression in which she much excelled. Music and conversation detained them in this enchanting spot till the last sun's light slept upon the plains, till the white sails that glided beneath the mountains where the Garonne wandered became dim, and the gloom of the evening stole over the landscape. It was a melancholy, but not an unpleasing gloom. Seriously? I said melancholy. It didn't even take us, what, a hundred words to get to the word melancholy? I win. Should have rung the bell, sorry. St. Aubert and his family rose and left the place with regret. Alas, Madame St. Aubert knew not that she left it forever. When they reached the fishing house, she missed her bracelet and recollected that she had taken it from her arm after dinner and left it on the table when she went to walk. After a long search in which Emily was very active, she was compelled to resign herself to the loss of it. What made this bracelet valuable to her was a miniature of her daughter which was attached to it, and esteemed a striking resemblance, which had been painted only a few months before. Where's my bell? Okay, uh, miniatures were a very popular thing, um, especially for, you know, like pocket jewelry, but given their size, are extremely hard to paint, of course, and so miniatures often do not resemble their people that they are modeled after. Um, so miniatures of striking resemblance would be something very fine indeed. Uh, cause you've got to pay someone who's very proficient at miniature painting to be able to do a really good miniature. Otherwise miniatures in general are, you know, a blob somewhat resembling the person that you were looking to have a picture of. So anyway, uh, miniatures, um, I don't even know when miniatures started to be popular, but miniatures were popular all the way up through the invention of photography when they became popular in lockets. Um, you get a miniature photo, so, you know, uh, oh, Jesus, a squirrel must have walked by. Suddenly, much movement. Um, <laughs> anyway, so, there you go. A few months before. When Emily was convinced that the bracelet was really gone, she blushed, becoming thoughtful, that some stranger had been in the fishing house during her absence. Her lute and the lines of the pencil had already informed her. From the pur purport of these lines, it was not unreasonable to believe that the poet, the musician, and the thief were the same person. But, though the music she had heard and the rhyme she had lines she had seen and the disappearance of the picture formed a combination of circumstances very remarkable she was irresistibly restrained from mentioning them secretly determining however never again to visit the fishing house without monsieur or madame saint aubert they returned pensively to the chateau emily musing on the incident which had just occurred occurred saint aubert reflecting with placid gratitude on the blessings he possessed and madame saint aubert by 
somewhat disturbed and perplexed by the loss of her daughter's picture. As they drew near the house, they observed an unusual bustle about it. The sound of voices distinctly heard, servants and horses were seen passing between the trees, and, at length, the wheels of a carriage rolled along, having come within view of the front of the chateau, a lando, with smoking horses, appeared on the little lawn before it. A landaloo, landau, a landau, I don't know why I said landaloo, a landau is a type of carriage. Um, and smoking horses, I assume, would mean that they are sweating and steam is coming off of them or something like that. I doubt the horses are smoking cigars or whatever, you know, Walt Disney-esque thing that might have entered my mind is probably not what she meant there. St. Aubert perceived the liveries of his brother-in-law. Oh, I should ring the bell again, but liveries are like your, um your coat of arms and your colors of your household so that you would be identifiable at a distance. The liveries of his brother-in-law and in the parlor he found Monsieur and Madame Quincel already entered. They had left Paris some days before and were on their way to their estate only ten leagues distant from the Vallée, where Monsieur Quincel had purchased several years before from Saint-Aubert. This gentleman was the only brother to Madame Saint-Aubert, but the ties of the relationship having never been strengthened by congeniality of character, the intercourse between them had not been frequent. Madame Quincel had lived in another world altogether. Monsieur. See, they just, they put an M, and then they expect me to just know that it's Monsieur and not Madame. Monsieur Quincel had lived altogether in the world. His aim had been consequence. Splendor was the object of his tastes, and his address and knowledge of character had carried him forward by the attainment of almost all that he courted. By a man of such a disposition, it is not surprising the virtues of Saint-Aubert should be overlooked, or that his pure taste, simplicity, and moderate wishes were considered the marks of a weak intellect and confined views." The marriage of his sister with Saint-Aubert had been mortifying to his ambition, for he had designed that matrimonial connection she formed should assist him to attain the consequence which he so much desired, and some offers were made to her by persons whose rank and fortune flattered his warmest hope. But his sister, who had then been addressed also by Saint-Aubert, perceived, or thought she perceived, that happiness and splendor were not the same, and she did not hesitate to forego the last for the attainment of the former. Whether Monsieur Conseil thought them the same or not, he would have readily sacrificed his sister's peace of to the gratification of his own ambition, and, on her marriage with Saint-Aubert, expressed in private contempt of her spiritless conduct, and the connection which it permitted. Madame Saint-Aubert, though she concealed this insult from her husband, felt perhaps for the first time resentment lighted in her heart, and though regard for her own dignity, united with the considerations of prudence, restrained her expression of this resentment, there was ever after a mild reserve in her manner towards Monsieur Quincel, which he both understood and felt. In his own marriage he did not follow his sister's example. He, the lady was an Italian, an heiress by birth, and by nature and education was a vain and frivolous woman. They were now determined to pass the night with Saint-Aubert, and as the chateau was not large enough to accommodate their servants, the latter were dismissed to the neighboring village. Where the first compliments were over, the arrangements for the night were made. Monsieur Quincel began a display of his intelligence and his connection, while Saint-Aubert, who had been long enough in retirement to find these topics recommended by their novelty, listened with a degree of patience and attention, which his guests mistook for the humility of wonder. 
The latter indeed described the few festivities which the turbulence of the period permitted the court of Henry the Third, with a minuteness of somewhat recommended for his ostentation. Sorry, I was reaching for the bell. Um, so I was gonna say about Henry the Third. So the year this book is supposedly set is fifteen eighty four, which is a year of tension in France. Uh, there are it was the wars of religion, um, apparently. And so, you know, she's throwing in a little historical reference, but reading about it here um, in my annotated version of the book, the, the author of this annotated version says that Radcliffe is really not that interested in history. She's kind of just giving it a bit of lip service just and whenever she does mention history, it's just to increase general anxiety of the characters. It's not actually to serve as a general knowledge of history. Um she wasn't that interested in history. So oftentimes when she references things, history is not accurate. Uh, she was accurate in this time um, that there was an upsetting thing going on with religion. It's not really pertinent to the novel, so I won't go on about what the wars were about or anything like that. Uh, just that they were wars in France and things were not at ease. Um, it is interesting. The author also notes in this um, sort of... What, what do you call it? A footnote about that um, section. They say that, um, you know, most of the time the characters are very off of the period which they're supposed to be set. Uh, the characters act definitely not like people uh, would have acted in the 1500s. That in general, she's writing a book for a modern audience with modern characters in a historic time. Um, and the funny part is, is that the parts of the book that have aged the best are the parts where um, she's trying more to get her characters in line. And the, the, the parts that were modern then now are the parts that haven't aged well. So it's just kind of interesting. Um, she wanted to set her book in the 1500s and did, but she didn't actually want to write a work of historical fiction, but, and Jane Austen ran into some of this as well, that she wrote modern stories, but the problem is, is that then you have to reference currents going on and, um, current places and things. And the modern audience is very critical and they say, you mentioned the blank Shire, like, oh, well, the regiment was never there. The regiment always goes east, you know, and, and so Jane Austen sometimes even just omitted using city names and things because she didn't want to get too caught up in details. And so Radcliffe has set her book, you know, several hundred years prior to when she actually is living to avoid a lot of that, uh, it sounds like, and just to create a general atmosphere. Um, but she's not writing a, a true um, history. It, it's, you know, even... I happen to like some historical um, fiction, obviously. I mean, I'm reading historical fiction. But I mean, like, historical romance and stuff. Like, I happen to like some of those novels. And they usually try fairly hard to get the history accurate, at least accurate enough that no one will notice that they're not. And it seems like, according to my annotated version, Radcliffe really didn't try and make her characters act like they would have acted in the 1500s. She has them act rather modern. Um, so it's just kind of, it's just kind of an interesting point, but we're going to go on here. Um, 
Where were we? Oh, yes. The war. Henry III. Okay. The latter, indeed, described the few festivities with the turbulence of the, of the period permitted to the court of Henry III with a minuteness that somewhat recommend recompensed for his ostentation. But when he came to speak of the character of Duke de Joyce as secret treaty of which he knew to be negotiating with the port, and the light of which Henry of oh this one's hard to say Nevers was received monsieur saint aubert recollected enough of his former experience to be assured that his guest could only have been an inferior class of politicians and that from the importance of the subjects on which he committed committed himself he could not be of the rank to which the present to which he pretended to belong the opinions delivered by Monsieur Quinel were as such as St. Aubert forbade replying to, for he knew that his guests had neither humility to feel, nor discernment to perceive what is just. Madame Quinsel, meanwhile, was expressing to Madame St. Aubert her astonishment that she could bear to pass her life in this remote corner of the world, as she called it, and describing from a wish probably of exciting envy the splendor of balls, of banquets, the processions which had been given by the court in honor of the nuptials of the Do Duke of Joyce and Margareta of Lorraine, the sister of the Queen. She described with equal minuteness of magnificent magnificence she had seen, and from what she had been it and from what she had been excluded while emily's vivid fancy as she listened to with ardent curiosity of youth heightened the scenes which she heard of and madame saint aubert looking on her family felt as a tear stole her eye though splendor may that though splendor may grace happiness only virtue can bestow it it is now it is now twelve years saint aubert no that is a guy damn it <laughs> again with the M throwing me off. It is now twelve years, Saint Aubert, said Monsieur Quincel, since I purchased your family estate. Somewhat thereabout, replied Saint Aubert, suppressing a sigh. It is near five years since I have been there, resumed Quincel. Quincel, yeah, I gotta be saying that right. For Paris and its neighborhood is the only place in the world to live in, and I am so immersed in politics and have so many affairs for a moment on my hands that I find it difficult to steal away even for a month or two. Saint Aubert remained silent. Monsieur Quincel proceeded. I have sometimes wondered how you, who have lived in the capital and have been in accustomed to company, can exist elsewhere, especially in so remote as a country as this, where you can neither hear nor see anything that can be short of scarcely conscious of life. I live for my family and for myself said Saint-Aubert, and I am contented to know only happiness. Formerly, I knew life. I mean to expect thirty or forty thousand liveries on improvements, said Monsieur Cancel, without seeming to notice the words of Saint-Aubert, for I design next summer to bring my friends, the Duc de Rufort and the Marquis de Romont, to pass a month or two with me. To St. Aubert's inquiry as to these intended improvements, he replied that he should take down the whole of the east wing of the chateau, and raise upon the site a set of stables. Then I should build, said he, a salon de manger, a salon, 
a salle du commune and several of number of rooms for servants at present there is not accommodation for one-third of my own people I'm so sorry. I dropped you. Okay, I should really have done this in the chapter notes. I did not occur to me that there would be so many chapter notes. Um, but anyway, those rooms he's talking about um, that I probably butchered the French on. I'm so sorry if there are any French people listening or anyone who speaks anything remotely close to French. Um, but those are a drawing room, a drawing room and parlor, a common room. Um, apparently Radcliffe's French is faulty in the case of the last term because she appears to mean as salle commune although this generally refers to assembly rooms in a public building rather than in a private house so haha radcliffe your french sucks too although it's still 10 million times better than mine oh now i dropped my bell well you guys heard the bell ring so i'll start talking it accommodated my own father's household, said St. Aubert, grieved that the old mansion would be thus improved, and that was not a small one. Our notions are somewhat large since those days, said Monsieur Conseil, that even a, though a decent style of living could now be endured, what was then even thought a decent style of living could not now be endured. Even the calm St. Aubert blushed at these words, but his anger soon yielded to contempt. The ground, the ground around the chateau is encumbered with trees. I mean to cut some of them down. Cut down the trees, too? said St. Aubert. Certainly. Why should I not? They interrupt my prospects. There is a chestnut which spreads its branches before the whole south side of the chateau, which is so ancient, they tell me, that the hollow of its trunk will hold a dozen men. Your enthusiasm will scarcely contend that there, there could be either use or beauty in such a sapless old tree as this. Good God! exclaimed St. Aubert. You surely will not destroy that noble chestnut. It has flourished for centuries, the glory of the estate. It was in its maturity when the present mansion was built. How often in my youth have I climbed among its broad branches, and sat embowered amidst the... Embowered, not embowered. <laughs> sat embowered amidst the world of leaves, while the heavy shower was pattered above, and not a drop of rain reached me. How often have I sat with a book in my hand, sometimes reading and sometimes looking out between the branches, upon the wide landscape, till the setting sun, till twilight came, and brought the birds home to their little nests above the leaves. How often—but pardon me— added St. Aubert, recollecting he was speaking to a man who could neither comprehend nor allow for his feelings. I am talking of times and feelings as old-fashioned as the taste that would spare that venerable tree. It will certainly come down, said Monsieur Conseil. I believe I shall plant some larbandy poplars amongst the clumps of chestnut that I shall leave of an avenue. Madame Conseil is partial to the poplar and tells me how it adorns the villa of her uncle, not far from Venice. On the banks of Bretina, indeed, continued St. Aubert, there, where in its spiry form it is intermingled with pine and the cypress, and where it plays over the light and elegant porticos and colonnades, it is unquestionably ador it unquestionably adorns the scene among the mansions of the among the giants of the forest near a heavy Gothic mansion. 
"'Well, my good sir,' said Mr. Kinsell, "'I will not dispute with you. "'You must return to Paris before our ideas can all agree. "'But a pro of Venice, I have some thoughts of going thither next summer. "'Events may call me to take possession of that same villa, too. "'They tell me it's most charming that can be imagined. "'In that case, I shall leave some of the improvements I mentioned to another year, "'and I may perhaps be tempted to stay some time in Italy.' Emily was surprised to hear him talk of being tempted to remain abroad, after he mentioned his presence to be so necessary to Paris. But it was with difficulty that he could steal away for a month or two. But St. Aubert understood the self-importance of the man too well to wonder at this trait, and the possibility that these projected improvements might be deferred gave him hope that they may never take place. Before they separated for the night, Monsieur Conseil desired to speak with St. Aubert alone. They retired to another room, where they remained a considerable time, the subject of this conversation is not known, but, whatever it may be, St. Aubert, when he returned to the supper-room, seemed much disturbed, and a shade of sorrow sometimes fell upon his features, that alarmed Madame St. Aubert. When they were alone, she was tempted to inquire the occasion of it, but the delicacy of mind which had ever appeared to, in his conduct restrained her. She considered that, if St. Aubert wished her to be acquainted with the subject of his concern, he would not wait for her inquiries." on the following day before monsieur conseil departed he had a second conference with st aubert the guests after dining at the chateau sat out on the cool of the day of epperville where they gave him and madame st aubert a pressing invitation prompted rather by the vanity of displaying their splendour than a wish to make their friends happy emily returned with delight to the liberty which their presence had restrained to her books and her walks and rational conversation of madame and monsieur st aubert who seemed to rejoice no less that they were delivered from the shackles which elegance and frivolity had imposed madame st aubert excused herself from sharing their usual evening walk complaining she was not well and st aubert and emily went out together they chose to walk towards the mountain, intending to visit some old pensioners of St. Aubert, which, from his very moderate income, he contrived to support, though it is probable Monsieur Conseil, with his very large one, could not have afforded this. After their distributing to his pensioner their weekly stipends, listening patiently to the complaints of some, redressing the grievances of others, and softening the discontents of all by the look of sympathy and a smile of benevolence, St. Aubert returned home from the woods." home through the woods poem where at the fall of the eve the fairy people throng in various games and revelry to pass the summer night as village stories tell thompson the evening gloom of woods was always delightful to me said saint aubert whose now whose mind was now experienced with sweet calm which was the result of the consciousness of having done a benefit action and which disposes it to receive pleasure from every surrounding object. I remember that my youth, this gloom, used to call forth my own fancy a thousand fairy visions and romantic images, and, I own, I am not wholly indispensable of that high enthusiasm which walks straight for the poet's dream. I can linger with solemn steps under the deep shades, and set forward the transforming eye into the distant obscurity, listen with thrilling delight to the mystic murmuring of the woods." "'Oh, my dear father,' said Emily, with sudden tears started to her eye, "'how exactly you describe what I have felt so often, "'which I thought nobody had ever felt but myself. "'But hark!' 
Here comes the sweeping sound over the wood tops. Now it dies away. How solemn the stillness that succeeds. Now the breeze swells again. It is like the voice of some supernatural being, the voice of the spirit of the woods which watches over them by night. Ah, what light is yonder, but it is gone. It now gleams again near the root of that large chestnut. Look, sir. Are you such an admirer of nature, said St. Aubert, and so little acquainted with her appearances as not to know for the glow-worm? But come, he added gaily, step a little further and we shall see fairies. Perhaps they are often companions. The glow-worm lends his light, and they, in return, charm him with music and dance. Do you see nothing tripping yonder? Emily laughed. Well, my dear sir, said she, since you allow this alliance, I may venture to own I have anticipated you, and almost dared to venture to repeat some verses I made one evening in these very woods. Nay, replied St. Aubert, dismiss this almost, and venture quite. Let us hear what Verage's fancy has been playing on your mind. If she has given you one of your, her spells, you need not envy those of fairies. If it is strong enough to enchant your judgment, sir, said Emily, while I disclose her images, I need not envy them. The lines go in a sort of tripping measure, which I might, I thought might suit the subject well enough, but I fear they are too irregular. <clears throat> the Glowworm Oh, how pleasant is the greenwood's deep matted shade on a midsummer's eve when the fresh rain is o'er, when the yellow beams slope and sparkle through the glade, and swiftly in the thin air the light shallows soar. But sweeter, sweeter still when the sun sinks to rest and twilight comes on, when fairies so gay tripping through the forest walk with their flowers unpressed bow not their tall heads beneath the, their frolic play. To music's softened sounds they dance away the hour, till moonlight steals down among the trembling leaves, all checkers all, and checkers all the ground, and guides them to the bower, the long haunted bower where the nightingale grieves. But then no more they dance till her sad song is gone, but silent as the night to her mourning attend, and often as her dying notes their pity have won, they vow her sacred haunts from mortals to defend. When down among the mountains sinks the evening star, and changing noon, moon forsakes its shadowy sphere, how cheerless they will be, though they fairies are, if I with my pale light came not near. Yet cheerless though they be, they're ungrateful to my love, for often when the traveller's been knighted on his way, and, and I glimmer in his path, and would guide him through the grove they bind me with their magic spells and lead him far astray and in the mire to leave him till the stars are all burnt out while in strange-looking shapes they frisk along the ground and afar in the woods they raise a dismal shout till i shrink into my cell again for terror of the terror of the sound but i see where all the tiny elves come dancing in a ring with the merry merry pipe and tabor and horn and the timbrel so clear and the lute with the dulcet string and then round the oak till they go peeping out of the morn down yonder glade to lovers steal to shut the shun the fairy queen who frowns on their plighted vows and jealous is jealous is of me and jealous is of me, yeah, that yester-eve I lighted them along the dewy green to seek the purple flower whose juice from all her spells can free, and now to punish me she keeps afar her jocund band with merry merry pipe and tabor and the lute 
if i creep near yonder yoke she will wave her fairy wand and to me the dance will cease and all music be mute oh had i but a purple flower whose leaves her charms can foil and who knew phase and knew like phase to draw the juice and blow it on the and throw it on the wind <laughs> i'd be her slave no longer nor the traveller beguile and help all faithful lovers nor fear the fairy kind but soon the vapour of the woods will wander far and the fickle moon will fade and the stars disappear then cheerless will they be though fairies they are if i with my pale light come not near whatever saint aubert might think of the stanzas he would not deny his daughter the pleasure of believing that he approved of them and having given his condemnation he sunk into a reverie and they walked on in silence and another poem a faint erroneous ray glanced from thus imperfect surfaces of things flung half an image to the on the straining eye while the waving woods the villages and streams and rocks and mountain tops that long retrain the ascending gleam are all one swimming scene uncertain if beheld thompson Here we go, guys. St. Aubert continued silent till he reached the chateau, where his wife had retired to her chamber. The languor and dejection that had lately oppressed her, and the exertion called forth by the arrival of her guests, had now suspended, had suspended, now returned with increased effect. On the following day, symptoms of fever appeared, and St. Aubert, having sent for medical advice, learned that her disorder was the same fever in nature of that which he had lately recovered. She had indeed taken the in on the infection during her attendance on him, and her constitution being too weak to throw out the disease immediately, it had lurked in her veins, and occasionally the, and occasioned the heavy languor of which she had complained to St. Aubert, whose anxiety for his wife overcame every other consideration and detained the physician in his house. He remembered the feelings and reflections he had called on in a momentary gloom on his mind on the day he had last visited the fishing-house in the company of Madame St. Aubert and he now admitted a presentiment that his illness would be a fatal one but he eventually concealed this from her effectually concealed this from her and his daughter whom he endeavored to reanimate with the hopes of her constant assiduities would not be unveiling the physician when asked by saint aubert for his opinion of the disorder replied that the event uh, depended on the circumstances which he could not ascertain madame st aubert seemed to have formed a more decided one but her eyes gave only little hints of this she frequently fixed them on her anxious friends with an expression of pity and of tenderness as if she anticipated the sorrow that waited for them and that seemed to say that it was for their sakes only and for their sufferings that she regretted life on the seventh day the disorder was at its crisis the physician assumed a gravely manner which she observed and took occasion when her family had once quitted the chamber to tell him that she perceived her death was approaching do not attempt to deceive me she said i feel i cannot long survive i am prepared for the event i have long i hope been preparing for it since i have not long to live do not suffer a mistaken compassion to induce you to flatter my family with false hopes if you do their affliction will only rise the heavier when it arrives i will endeavour to teach them resignation by my example the physician was affected he promised to obey her and told st aubert somewhat abruptly that there was nothing to expect 
The latter was not philosopher enough to restrain his feelings when he received this information, but considered, but consideration of the increased affliction which the exuberance of his grief would occasion his wife enabled him, after some time, to command himself in her presence. Emily was at first overwhelmed with the intelligence, then, being deluded by strength of her wishes, a hope sprung up in her mind that her mother would yet recover, and to this she pre preciously adhered almost to the last hour. The progress of this disorder was marked, and the side of Madame Saint-Aubert by patient suffering and subjected wishes. The composure which she awaited her death could only be derived from the retrospect of a life governed, as far as the human frailty permits, by a consciousness of what was always in the presence of the deity, and in the hope of a higher world. But her piety was not entirely subdued the grief of parting from those whom she dearly loved. During her last hours she conversed much with St. Aubert and Emily on the prospect of futurity and on other religious topics. The resignation she expressed, and the firm hope of meeting in a future world of the friends she left in this, and the effort which sometimes appealed, appeared to conceal her sorrow at this temporary separation, frequently affected St. Aubert so much as to oblige him to leave the room. Having indulged in his tears a while, he would dry them and return to the chamber with a countenance composure, composed by an endeavor which but did increase his grief. Never had Emily felt the importance of the lessons which she had taught her to restrain her sensibility so much as in these moments, and never had she practiced them with a triumph so complete. But when the last was over, she sunk at once under a pressure of her sorrow, and then perceived that it was hope as well as fortitude which had hitherto supported her. St. Aubert was for a time too devoid to comfort himself, too devoid of comfort himself to bestow any on his daughter." End chapter one. Okay. Um, so, yeah, just to go along with, you know, these characters are acting out modern things in an older time. I mean, that whole cut down an avenue thing, you know, that's right out of Cooper, which is... Um, He's pretty near this era as well to Radcliffe. Um, Jane Austen references him. We've talked about him before in the podcast. So I, they are talking about a lot of modern things. Um, and you'll see here that Radcliffe is also talking about the sensibility, you know, conquering your emotions, um, which is something we also see a lot in Austen. Women in this period especially were told you are an inherently weak creature. You are prone to being insensible. You have, you know, your emotional highs and lows. And the only way that you can really function is to have self-governance. And so here we've already seen several times that um, Emily's been urged into sensibility. Um, we've already seen her talking about imaginary fears and things like that. So... Um, you know, that's definitely a theme that goes on a lot in writings in this period because it was a popular belief that women were just emotionally fragile little things. Um, I have feelings about this. Uh, but anyway, interesting first chapter. So that was all one chapter. It was about 18 pages in the book that I have. Um, 
the version I have. Yeah, it goes from a very interesting start through a lot of scene descriptions, random poetry, what seemed like to me kind of random weird poetry, uh, to um, mom dying. So definitely seems gothic so far. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, so mom's dead. Very sad. Knew it had to be one of the parents. You can't be a proper gothic heroine and have both parents alive at the start of a story. Uh, so one assumes we're going to lose Papa here in the near future. I'm playing with the book a lot. I'm sorry. It's probably really loud. Um, but anyway, so uh, I don't know how much longer he lasts. I'm trying to see, but I'm assuming it's a little while. But uh, yeah, so... Dear old Emily, and she's got a creeper of an admirer out there somewhere who writes poetry about her on some line. I mean, I hear that, and I think, you know, writing on the bathroom wall, like, this is just, it's just a little different. But anyway, poetry about her, and then stole her mom's bracelet, and played her lute. It sounds very non-romantic, very creepy. Um, she was a little flattered. Which I guess, if I was a teenager, I would have been a little flattered, even though it was creepy. So, doesn't I guess it kind of makes sense. We don't really know how old Emily is. I don't think it's been stated, but I assume she can't be very old. Anyway, so chapter one, how'd it go? What do you guys think? How are you liking it? Um, yeah, I think breaking the chapter into two parts was a very good plan. I will try and do better about making sure I get the annotations out in the introduction. Um, if the chapters are going to keep being so long, then we probably will do like two parts and we'll just, yeah, we'll just have to see how that goes. Um, let me just check your next chapter looks not quite as long. Next chapter is only, only 10 pages as opposed to 18. So, all right. Well, I'll see you guys later then. I hope you're all having a spooky day and that nobody is dying. Yeah, that's let's let's hope for that.